Lord, we thank you for the book of James, Lord, how you have revealed your heart through the pen of James for our benefit, Lord. We are so privileged to be able to read that and, Lord, to discover what it is that you want us to know. And, Lord, we realize that the book of James is not um, easy material. You are going for the jugular of our souls. And, Lord, we ask that as we are the recipients of what you say, that we would be humble to hear, to listen, and to take it to heart, Lord, and to be affected and changed by it. So, Lord, would you allow me to be your mouthpiece this morning? And, Lord, may, uh, may you, uh, Lord, allow us to, to grow and to develop and to, to see ourselves afresh as people who you are working on for your glory um, to be like Jesus Christ ultimately. We ask this now in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. During the McCarthy era of American history, there was a special Senate race that was taking place in the state of Florida. And it was between a man by Claude, by the name of Claude Pepper, who was the incumbent and had been there for many years, and he was running against a man by the name of George Smathers. Now, according to major newspapers, Smathers lashed out at his campaign at his, or in his campaign, at Pepper, who happened to be a, a, a liberal-thinking um, uh, senator, uh, the Democratic Party, and he identified him as Red Pepper. If you remember during the McCarthy area, Red, communist, and, and to be a communist was like, oh, no, you can't call me out on that, right? And so then he sought to expose Claude Pepper's secret vices, and this is what he said. He claimed that Pepper was a known extrovert, in Washington, D.C., and that his sister was a thespian, and that his brother was a practicing homo sapien. He also mentioned that when Pepper went to college, he actually matriculated. And the worst accusation against Pepper was that he practiced celibacy before marriage. And interestingly enough, the constituents who may not have known what all those words meant ended up turning against him, and Smathers ended up winning the seat. And it was reported in the newspapers that a new industry was taking place in Florida called canned peppers. You have to think through that one. Now, some debate the authenticity of these things. It's actually recorded. You can look online. You can see it. Some actually say this is not true. But in today's world, the Facebook world, the Instagram world, the, the Twitter world, it seems that what we see on social media today is not really anything new, is it? This kind of stuff where people use their words to attack other people has been around for a long time. Words carefully crafted can be used to deceive and to destroy. All you have to do today is turn on the news, and you will find words and phrases such as bribery, quid pro quo, fundamentalist, climate change, patriotic, nationalist, and so many other words that are causing this great polarization in our culture. Words are powerful. And they cause 
damage. And we've already seen that in, in, in James's letter. He's talked about the tongue and the need to bridle the tongue. But now he's getting to something different. So the purposes today are far greater than any political discussion. What we have this morning is the opportunity to hear from God through his breathed out word and the pen of his servant James. Of course, James was the brother of Jesus. Let's just read this one more time. Just follow as I read. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And friends, the real question as we begin this morning is this. Is James finishing up his thought of his discussion of the presence of worldliness in the church? Or is he simply introducing a new topic to emphasize? We've seen how the wisdom of the world infiltrates our hearts and causes quarrels and fights. James has already talked about that. Those are the fruit of jealousy and selfish ambition. We've seen the danger of being double-minded, thinking that we can have our heart kind of split with one foot in the wisdom of the world and one foot supposedly embracing the wisdom of God. But those things cannot take place. But James has been clear to teach us some things, hasn't he? that we need the implanted word, that we need the wisdom of heaven, a wisdom that is from above, and we need the grace of God, which he grants freely if we will simply ask for it. And if we go back to the beginning of the letter, we're reminded that James is pushing for us to demonstrate our developing Christian maturity by testing ourselves on a number of issues, and so he plays out these issues. There's the test of partiality. There's a test of fruitfulness. There's the test of how we use our tongues. There's the test of the presence of the wisdom of the world in our hearts, and each of these tests is given to us to reveal the the sinfulness that is still present in us and our need to continue to receive the implanted word so that we can push on to maturity. So now James builds on what he has been saying. For when hearts are influenced by worldliness and are striving to be satisfied by that wisdom of the world, it will naturally result in quarrels and fights. And in the thick of those quarrels, in the the thick of those conflicts, words are spoken, but not typically words of edification, but words that rip apart and words that tear down. So James is expanding now on this issue of the tongue and the tongue being influenced by the wisdom of the world. And friends, it takes maturity, it takes humility to recognize that we have a problem with our words. There is not a person in this room today who isn't struggling with this. And that's what James wants us to understand and we must embrace. We're not talking about other people out there or another church out there. This is a struggle that we experience here. Why? Because we're sinful creatures. And these are natural fruits of the flesh. And so we want to take what James says as serious and as for us. 
when the wisdom of the world shapes our hearts and the desires we worship in our hearts are fashioned and shaped by that wisdom, it's a formula for disaster and for destruction. And what we say in those times will often shock us. So friends, we need to be ready to hear. Let me just help you out a little bit because I think I think there's ways in which we think we're far better than we really are. Kathy Plate from Orlando, Florida, tells the story of a time when she visited her neighbor. And she walked into the kitchen, and the five-year-old Andrew pulled out his kindergarten class picture and began to describe each classmate. He pointed and said, this is Robert. He hits everyone. And then this is Stephen. He never listens to the teacher. Then he said, and this is Mark. He, he chases us and is very noisy. And then he pointed at his own picture and he says, and this is me. I'm just sitting here minding my own business. But friends, isn't that how we typically think? Everyone else has a problem, but there's nothing wrong with me. We can be so blind to, to, to how how easily and how quickly we give freedom to speak evil or to judge one another. And unfortunately, we turned a blind eye to the damage our words can do. You may be aware that many female spiders devour um, their male counterparts. And there's a reason why a female spider is often called a widow. It is for embarrassing reasons. But what happens is that, is that lonely suitors make their way into her web and quickly become corpses for her dining room, which is this morgue, so to speak. And if you happen to be a fly, you are left to be a shell because the spider doesn't have the stomach in order to eat that fly whole. And so that spider actually injects fluid inside the fly, which tears up the insides and, and make it, makes it kind of like this, this soup substance. And then all that stuff is sucked. All right, spider milkshake, right? Just gone, right? Boba spider, if you want to put it that way. And friends, this is kind of a picture, a metaphor of what happens when we speak evil or we judge one another. We end up entering into the person's heart with the, the juices of jealousy and selfish ambition, and we suck the life out of their souls with our destructive words. Now, friends, to that end, I, I want us to see that what James is talking about here, what he wants us to notice here, is the danger of speaking evil among the brethren. Or to say it a little differently, this is bold counsel for the judgmental heart. Jesus once said, Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, 
slander. But Jesus is speaking of slander in, in a line of those other things. It's something that we should pay attention to. Now, as we, as we think about moving on, let's just think about the structure of this passage one more time. Because like last week, we saw that there was a sandwich. James does the same thing. He begins with a warning or a command to not speak evil against your brother. He ends with a question that emphasizes the same thought. Who are you to judge your brother? And then in between that, in the middle, we find the rationale for why speaking evil or having a judgmental spirit is dangerous among the brethren. So let's jump in now to this first one. It's a commandment that we must obey. Look at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So friends, this is, this is a warning and it's a commandment. It's a unique warning James gives for those who are part of the body of Christ, right? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers, brethren. And he's not just referring to the men. This is a word that he uses throughout his letter to describe the body of Christ. Now, certainly, this does not mean that we have license to speak evil of those outside the church, but he is homing in on a problem that is present in the church. So what does it mean to speak evil against someone? Well, first of all, the idea of speak evil, it comes from a Greek word, katalaleo, which means to speak against. Other translations use the word slander, but it's a stronger word than slander. Slander is malicious speech that is untrue. But here, the, com the command forbids any speech, true or false, which runs down another person. It's talking about harmful speech. It's talking about uh, speaking badly about someone. It's, it is to, to say destructive words, true or false, that tear down someone else. And as you see in the passage, that evil uh, speaking, or speaking evil and this word judge go hand in hand. They're parallel together in, in how he describes things, right? So we have also the word judge. The idea of this word judge is, is not evaluation, but it is condemnation. So to kind of put it all together, the idea here is this, to speak down to someone in order to tear them down. You're speaking down to them, and you're speaking down in such a way that you're trying to cause damage, cause harm. And ultimately what James is talking about is not a problem of the mouth. It's not a problem with someone's vocabulary. It's not a problem with their communication technique. It's ultimately a problem of the heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, we're told. So it is about what you're saying, but it's also about how you are saying it. And the source of those words is the issue. Is the person looking to build up and edify, or is the person looking to tear down and to discourage and to discredit? So it's important here that we understand what James is saying and what he is not saying, okay? It's important that both are given attention here. So what is James, what is James not saying? In other words, is there ever a time when speaking truthfully in right context, for the right reasons about someone is altogether appropriate. 
And of course the answer is yes. Let me share some of these with you. We'll get to maybe a little formal list in just a minute. But the reason this is necessary is because we're living in a culture today, in a contemporary world, where to have a contrary opinion or to say something negative about another person is considered hateful and is called judging. It has become culturally acceptable to ignore any words that we don't want to hear, especially the ones that are truthful, loving, and accurate about someone's heart and character. So if I don't like what you're saying about me or my character or a choice that I've made or, or a foolish behavior, I just say, you're being hateful and you're judging me. Even Jesus says that we're not to judge. And you've probably been the recipient of that. So because we want to be careful with Scripture and, and benefit from the instruction of James, let's consider what James is not saying here before we get into what he is saying. It is the Christian duty to exercise judgment or to be discerning. For example, we are to be aware of false prophets. How can we be aware of false prophets and how can we determine if they're false prophets unless we examine them against the standard of the word or look at their fruit? The examination requires careful judgment. So if someone commits adultery, someone commits murder or lying or or, or is stealing, we are to see those people and those behaviors for what they actually are, sinful behaviors. We are to judge them rightly in light of Scripture. Now, let's think about this a little bit more, because what the Scripture is forbidding is judgmentalism. Anyone here ever committed a sin? So I can talk to you about your sin, and I can talk to you about your sinful struggle. But when I start condemning you, that changes things. There's a right way to go about this. So here are some ways that we judge, that judging is not sinful but necessary. There's a lot going to be up here. You may want to wait for it to be up there. And you, a lot of you, I know, take pictures and stuff, so that's helpful too. It's not judging to be discerning regarding someone's character or teaching. I hope that when you go home today, you will say, hey, let's talk about the sermon that Pastor Rod gave. Is it accurate according to Scripture? Because that would mean you are being a Berean, right? We need that. There's a rightness to that. There's a rightness to, to judge my character as a, as a pastor, as a shepherd. There's an appropriateness to that. Secondly, to speak to someone, and if necessary to others, about their sin or false teaching. If you see a brother or sister who is wandering in sin, Scripture says you have a responsibility to go to that person and to expose that fault. It's how you go about it that's the issue here. You don't go condemning, but you go honestly, lovingly, caringly. That's all Matthew 18, 15 through 17. We call it church discipline. What that is is Jesus' expression to say, hey, this is how you love those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't let, don't let them wander in their sin because they're going to, it's going to be worse and worse than a loving person is going to go and talk to them and confront them. But we don't like the word confront. But it is a responsibility, friends, and it's a right thing. Scripture commands us to do that. Third, it's not judging to evaluate someone's spiritual maturity or doctrinal faithfulness for ministry or shepherding purposes. You know that. Why? Because we have Sunday school for our young people. And we're not just going to throw anyone in there. 
we have to do some evaluating and say, what kind of person is this? Do we think they're actually going to support the teaching of this church to our children? We have to do some discerning there. So friends, it's not wrong to say we are to judge. We are to come to some conclusions. We're supposed to be discerning. Yes, we are. That is perfectly right. It is commanded in Scripture, but there's a right way to go about it. Okay? So, often people want to sidestep being called out by their sin or for their sin, and they'll quote Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Look, get your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. I just, this is an important thing for us to see because the thinking of the world today is you don't have any right to judge. And they'll quote this verse, right? Judge not that you be judged. If it's the King James, lest you be judged, right? It has a little bit more of a power to it. Judge not lest you be judged. See? Now the problem is that people who are quoting that don't really understand what Scripture is saying. They say, that's, that's judgmental. No, it's, it's actual because they're being selective in their use of Scripture and they see it only to suit their own ends. How do we know that? Because that verse is in a context. And that context ultimately isn't saying, don't judge. It's ultimately saying, when you do judge, this is how you should do it. Let's read on, okay? It says... Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you will pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. In other words, the same standard you're using to judge them should be the standard that you're using to judge yourself. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is your own eye? Isn't it interesting that our responsibility to care for one another in such a way as we are to point out their sin, if it's something that we observe and it's concern for us, means that we have to do some soul-searching ourselves. That we're not coming to that person with this big log in our eye, right, to get their speck out. I mean, it's a, it's a ridiculous illustration to help us see the point and the importance of doing your own soul-searching first, using the same standard for yourself as you would do for others. So we'll keep reading here. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Get this. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly. What does it say? To take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, Jesus, who's speaking here, is saying, there is a way to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And it means you better be humble you better be consistent, and the standard you're using for them better be the standard you're using for yourself. And that standard ultimately better be God's truth. Okay? The point here is this. When we read that passage or that verse in its context, we realize, oh, this is actually giving us a way that we're supposed to judge, discern, help, confront someone who is walking in sin. Right? So, he's saying before you rightly confront your brother who is sinning, you must first do something personal, and that is search your own souls. Then you're able to do this. Now, friends, this is just one example of a text in God's Word that actually tells someone to judge uh, another person biblically, but has been turned upside down to say the complete opposite by our culture. 
all because we want to live in a way we please, and that is to satisfy our own sin. We don't want anyone else to have any say or to make us feel guilty. So having looked at what it's not, which is always a rule of thumb in preaching you should never do, right? because it's not there in the text, but it's important to recognize it's not, but let's recognize what James is saying. So we wanted to clear out the reality here is that there are right ways to judge. There's a rightness to discerning. But what is James getting at here? Well, he is saying this. He's saying that mature believers must stop speaking evil or judging their brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we must not be guilty of speaking down to people in order to tear them apart. Now, you know how it all happens. You say something to someone about your brother in Christ that you have no business saying. That's gossip. The fact that it's true or false doesn't change the fact that it's gossip. You had no right, you had no privilege to take that personal, private information and share it with that person that had no business knowing it. It's speaking of someone who in a way, lowers that person's reputation in the eyes of others by speaking things about them. That's slander, because the goal is to lower that person's opinion of that person. Again, what you may be saying may be true, it may be false, but the goal is to bring about damage to them in some way through your words. Now, we've all become very creative in the way we go about it, often to soothe their own consciences. We can often begin our statements with, now, now stop me if I'm wrong in sharing this, but. Or, I don't mean to be critical, but. Or, perhaps I shouldn't say this to her, or about her, but. Or the notorious, I have a prayer concern about him. He told me that, or this devious one, let's just keep this between us, shall we? These are all ways that we begin these opportunities now to tear down somewhere else. Dr. Albert Cantrill, who was a professor at Princeton University, conducted an experiment to see how quickly rumors spread. So he called six of his students into his office and told them in strict confidence that the Duke and Duchess of Windsor were planning to attend the university dance. Within a week, almost the whole student body was aware and was expecting it. The um, city officials called up the university, demanding to know what was taking place and upset with the fact that they had not been informed. And the press agencies were frantically even coming on campus trying to interview people. All because six people were given something in the strictest confidence. Dr. Cantrell later wrote, this was a pleasant rumor. A slanderous one travels even faster. And it's no wonder that Mark Twain, probably he was quoting Charles Spurgeon, that Baptist preacher from England, said, a lie can travel halfway around the world while truth is still lacing up the boots. Now, friends, there are three ways or three arenas 
we speak evil against or we judge one another. Let's think through those. First of all, we judge them in our hearts. You watch someone. You observe that person. You critique them. You pick up their weaknesses and failures. You notice gaps in their righteousness. You notice gaps in their theology. And you talk about them in the arena of your hearts. And no one else knows about it. But we're doing that thing. Secondly, we judge them to their face. We speak of evil or judging when it finds its way into our marriages, they become minefields of bitterness and criticism and judgment, recorded wrongs, rather than arenas of grace and love and appreciation for the differences God has created in each of us. When the cancer of speaking evil and judging one another finds its way into our parenting, we might find harshness and condemnation and judgment and words that should never be spoken or attitudes that should never be expressed are the devastating weapons that bring about disharmony and rebellion and excruciating pain. And when our relationships are affected with speaking evil and judging, we lose the needed blessing of encouragement, comforts, and the, the stimulation to love and good works that God calls us to, and the pointing of one another to Christ and the grace that is there for us because of him. See, friends, this, this is what happens when we judge other people. We judge them in our hearts. We judge them to their faces, but we also judge them to others, don't we? We talk about another's weakness, their failures, their sins to someone else. And in a perverse way, we find it satisfying. As I think James has said in other places, these things ought not so to be, my friends. <laughs> They ought not be true of believers, and especially between believers. So this is the commandment we must obey. Now let's jump into this assessment we must receive, because now he's going to speak about what happens. What are the implications of this? And you'll notice that verses 11b through 12a really follow a, an outline and that would be the idea of brother, the idea of law, and then the idea of God. So first of all, we want to recognize here that what James is saying is that when we speak evil or judge, we are placing ourselves above our brothers or sisters. The one who speaks against a brother, it says, or judges his brother. That's what we're doing. We're speaking against. We're judging them. We are putting ourselves above them. Now, what are some reasons why we speak evil against or judge one another? Well, let's think of a couple. I have three. First of all, we are all sinners. What does that mean? There's plenty of material to work with. Look around this room. You're sitting in a room of imperfect people. You is one of them. Now, People who have sinful struggles, some of them open for all to see, and some of them private for which they are truly ashamed. And there's plenty of weakness and sin and struggle and failure that we could point to. None of us is immune to this. I mean, it's just, it's all there, and we're sinful creatures. Secondly, 
We are spiritual sloths. What do you mean by that? Well, it's easier to speak evil of someone than it is to exercise mercy toward them. It's easier to look on someone from a distance and point a judgmental finger at them than to potentially walk alongside them to love them, to forgive them, and to to get your hands dirty with helping them. Just easier to say, that person over there, man, they, they are, as opposed to, I wonder how I can come alongside and help. You see, we're spiritual sloths. We'd rather be lazy with our responsibilities. And so what do we do? We open our mouths. Third, and I think this is getting to the core, we're all self-centered. We're all full of pride, and so we tend to think the best of us and think less of others. See, we can all be so easily deceived into thinking that we are smarter than we really are, that we're wiser than we really are, that we're stronger than we really are, that we're more righteous than we really are, that we're more disciplined than we really are, that we're holier than we really are, that we're less needy than we really are, that we're more put together than we really are. And ultimately, my judging of others results from my prideful assumptions that my sins are very small in comparison to theirs. That my speck is insignificant compared to their beam, when in reality, it is my beam that is knocking everyone off the chairs in the room as I try and get to the speck in that person's eye. My friends, we place ourselves above our brothers. Let me just back up a little bit here and just talk about just some basic principle of communication. And I want you to think about parenting. If you want to talk to your children on a level where they're going to open up, don't stand over them. In fact, one of the best things you can do is sit on the floor while they're sitting on the bed above you. That stance of being over them is an authoritative, domineering position. If you sit under them or at the same level, there's a peer thing going on, and there's a softness that will take place. It won't happen immediately. This is what happens when we stand over people. We are exercising authority over them. That's, that's, the, that's the image, the physical presence. So you place yourself above your brother. Secondly, you pray, place yourself above the law. Right? Continue reading here speaking evil against the law and judges the law, it says here, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, what is the law that James is talking about? Well, it's good to see in the context of James how James is using the expression law, and so how he's using it in this context. If you go back to James chapter 2 and verse 8, this is what you'll find. If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So James, in his own book, is defining this law as the royal law, and it's a law that says you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now also notice in this text, James describes his readers in the following ways. Brothers, which would mean brothers and sisters, one another, and how does he end the text? Neighbor. See, even the text itself is helping us understand 
that James is making a point here. He's connecting what he's saying to this royal law. He didn't have to use the word neighbor, but he's talking about a brother or sister in Christ. So he's describing them, and that is connecting what he's saying to this statement of the royal law. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And this is found in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And it's a passage that Jesus quoted when he asked about the when he was asked about the greatest commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if we turn to the book of Leviticus, we'll find here this passage. And, and, and this royal law is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In other words, you better listen to what I'm saying. This is strong stuff. But let's go back a little bit, and we're going to read something that hopefully bells will start ringing in your head. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Do you you hear a little bit of where James is getting his material? You shall not go around and slander among your people, and you shall not stand up Uh, against the life of your neighbor, I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. I think it's pretty clear that James has been meditating on Leviticus 19 as he's been writing this letter. The language, the topics, the issues are all coming from this text, are they not? So friends, the law that he's talking about then is this royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we speak evil against someone, when we judge someone, not only are we arrogantly standing over them personally, we're also standing over the law. And we have become arrogant judges of the law. So if we're not doing the law, then we are judges of the law, is what the text says. If we're not exercising love in our relationships with our fellow brothers and sisters, we are judging them based on our own law. And that own law may be God's law that has been, as the Pharisees did, added to, or it could be God's law that has been twisted to suit our purposes. But we are the ones now that determine what our law is, and that is the basis then of our evil speaking. Friends, let me remind you of the previous section of Scripture, James 4, 6 through 10. In that section, God is calling us to pursue what? Humility. <laughs> is it any wonder that James is putting this, these two verses right after he's talking about humility, that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud? So when we stand over the law, we are not being humble, but arrogant. We're saying that there is something wrong with God's royal law, that it doesn't apply to us, and that we know a better way. I remember probably over 10 years ago, I sat on a a jury for a criminal case. 
And it was really difficult for me to be on that jury because as I found out, I disagreed with the law that was being used to try this person for their crime. And the reason I disagreed with the law is because it included all sorts of psychological nonsense as far as I was concerned. Having, you know, having, you know pursued counseling and, and what they were saying is like, this doesn't even make any sense, but it was the law. So what I, and there was another, another person on the, on the jury, had to wrestle with was not whether we agreed with the law, which we clearly didn't, but whether I was going to uphold the law even though I didn't agree with it. You see the dilemma there. But then I had to remind myself that my job was not to use the jury room as a means to protest the inadequacy of the law. That's not the role of a juror. My job was to be a faithful juror who upholds the law. And if I failed to do that, then I would undermine due process for all involved. And ultimately, the victim. In other words, if, if a person was a criminal and they actually committed the crime, but I was quibbling about the law and the person goes free, the person who's innocent, who's the victim, is not served well. And I had to wrestle with this. Now, my job was to uphold the law and to make my ruling with a clear conscience in light of that law. I did not have the right to undermine the law. I had a responsibility to uphold it. Friends, you and I do not have the right to come to God's word and say, this is wrong. God should not say this. And when we don't actually come out and say things like that, we say, well, I think there's a different way you can interpret this. Right? I mean, the reason that, you know, God told Abraham and Lot to leave Sodom is because they just weren't hospitable. That's why God destroyed them. What? That's not what Scripture says at all. But it's a reinterpretation to satisfy your own desires. All right? And this is what happens when we stand over the law. Now, our country's laws are not perfect. They need refining and re-examining from time to time. There's a right way to go about changing them. And, and that wasn't my heart. I don't have the right to stand over the laws of the land, and I don't have the right to stand over God's law, certainly. So we stand over our brothers and sisters. We stand over the law. We also stand over, ultimately, God. That's what he's saying here. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge he who is able to save and to destroy. If you're arguing with, you know, with, with the law, then ultimately you're arguing with the author of the law. You're arguing with the lawgiver, right? So friends, don't rush past this verse. Take a closer look with me at what James is saying. It is a warning, and it is teaching us three main truths, that God is unique, that God is sovereign, and that God is powerful. First of all, God is unique, it says, there is only one. <laughs> you can go all over the world and try and find another one like God, and you will not find him. You can go to the, to the ends of the universe, if there is such a thing, and you will not find another. He is God. He alone is God. That is the message throughout the word of God. That is what we believe as God's people, as the children of God. There's one God. And we worship him. 
And if God is the only lawgiver and judge, then guess what? You are not. Sorry to knock you off your pedestal. And that is the point that James wants us to understand, that we are not the lawgiver. We are not the judge. God is the one who commands. God is the one who instructs. And we are called to submit to him. And we submit to those laws and to those commands because we know they come from a holy, pure lawgiver. Again, this is all from the context. Secondly, we are to see that God is Sovereign. He is described as the lawgiver and the judge. So lawgiver, he, is the, he, he gives the law in its purest form. It only comes from God. His laws are righteous, they're pure, they're just, they're holy, they're loving, they're gracious, they're reasonable, they're true. And he, because of his great knowledge and wisdom, is the only one who truly gives righteous laws. Man can't do that. Because man is always having a motive, always has something behind it, whereas God's laws are pure. They are for our benefit and for his glory. Then we have this word judge. Not only are God's laws perfect, he rules his creation with a righteous judgment. Again, the point that James is making is that you and I are not the authors of a righteous law, nor are we pure in how we would uphold the law. Only God is. And third, God is powerful. He alone is able to save and destroy. Just let the gravity of those words set into your hearts. This is eschatological language. This is talking or pointing us to the judgment. God is Able, in other words, he's powerful, but able to do what? We're told here, he's powerful to destroy and he's powerful to save. Friends, the God who called the world into existence that continues to uphold it with his his power, he's the God who controls every minute of his creation so that everything happens according to his will, according to his plans. He is the God who is able. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28 says this, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He has the power to destroy. You don't want to be on the wrong side of God. Now, friends, this is a wonderful truth. Because not only does he have power to destroy, he has the power to save. We're so rebellious, we're so stubborn, we're sinful that we would never, ever come to Christ on our own. We needed a Savior. We needed grace. We needed him to come and to slap us silly with his grace and breathe life into us. Left by ourselves, we would not seek out God. Romans 8, 7, Paul reminds us, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But God is able to save. He can overcome our rebellion and change our hearts so that we no longer run from him, but we're running to him as our savior, as our master. God has the power to save, friends. 
and he has the power to destroy. And friends, every time you and I wrongly are wrongly critical, condemning or legalistic and judgmental in what we're saying, we're saying ultimately, my way is better than God's way. And we place ourselves in our hearts above the unique, sovereign, and powerful God. Have fun with that. Now, we end up now with a question that we must answer. But who are you to judge? <laughs> James has just dropped the microphone and walked off the stage. But a statement hangs in the balance. Who are we? Who are we to judge? You see, unlike God, whose wisdom is perfect, we are ignorant. We don't have knowledge, apart from the fact that God gives us knowledge. Man looks on the outward appearance. We're told God looks on the heart. We can judge external sins, but we only do that imperfectly. We don't know what is actually in the heart of that person. You know, on the way to church this morning, I was coming on the left-hand side, two-lane road, and there was a light, and I happened to turn green, so I just had momentum. I pulled ahead, and a car that was in the right side who had stopped at the light was clearly angry with me, and they just try to get in behind me and somehow cut me off. And I thought to myself, I could come up with all sorts of things in my mind that I think and am convinced of that that person is thinking at that moment. But the truth of the matter is, I don't know. I see their actions. They might be angry with me because they oh, look at that person. They think they own the road and they're going to blah, 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 blah. I'm going to do this, boom. And we make our decisions based on what we think other people are thinking. See the problem there? And this is the problem. We're not, we're not um, full of knowledge. We are ignorant. Not only that, we're sinful. And the reason that's important for us to understand here is this. Although our sin is paid for by the blood of Christ, the presence of sin remains and it taints everything we do. So even our best efforts are clouded by our fallenness. That doesn't mean, oh, throw in the towel, don't do anything. What it means is we must be humble and honest to see our sinfulness for what it is and see how it influences our judgments and our discernment. And I was humbled by this, this poem this week by Puritan William Beveridge. Here's what he says. I cannot pray except I sin. I cannot preach, but I sin. I cannot administer nor receive the holy sacrament, but I sin. My very repentance needs to be repented of. <laughs> Think about that. And the tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. What he's getting at is even when we're doing the best that we can to worship God rightly, we still struggle with the presence of sin. We must all do all we can to avoid speaking evil or judging one another. It runs contrary to the central kingdom principle that says love your neighbor as yourself. 
And when we do have the responsibility to rightly judge someone, we must do so with great humility and for the glory of God. We must do so while doing our best, our imperfect best, to be submissive to God. Now, I want to finish up our time here with, I think, just five words of counsel and help that bring all this to a close from our text. I think here here are some ways that we can respond when we realize that we are speaking evil or have spoken evil or we are judging one another um, in an ungodly way. First of all, remember your identity. I think what's going on in this passage, even in James, he's he's just talking about brothers, 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 brethren, one another. He's speaking to God's people. And certainly within that heading, there may be people who are professing believers, but not true believers. But if you are a true believer today, remember your identity. You are a child of God. You are called to be different. Your allegiance is to Christ. Your allegiance is to what he says. So God's children are to live according to God's wisdom. So we we are to think, we're to talk, we're to act out of our identity with Christ. And if you're a follower of God, you know that. But in the heat of what's going on, it's good just to step back and remind yourself of who you are. Secondly, remember to whom you are speaking. Is it your spouse? Is it your child? Is it your friend? Is it your fellow believer? They're all made in the image of God. They're all objects of God's affection, and they are likely someone whom you love. Now, I've been in counseling for a while, and someone might say, I just can't love my wife. I say, okay, well, um, is she a believer? Yes, she's a believer. Okay, so the Bible says you're to love one another. So can you love her as a member of the body of Christ? Okay, you can't do that. The Bible says that you are to love your neighbor. Can you do that? Uh, oh, no. All right. Well, the Bible says you're to love your enemy. Can you do that? You see, we're all called to love. And hopefully nudging it up the ladder a little bit, right? Remember to whom you're speaking. Third, exercise a gospel-driven, scripture-anchored self-control. What happens when we speak evil or we judge one another is that the Hulk comes out in all of us. We tear our clothes. Someone's tapped into that Hulk side of us and we turn green. And I don't know how in the world those shorts end up expanding. Everything else gets blown off. That's a whole other thing. It's probably good for TV anyway. But that's who we become when we are in the thick of speaking evil and judging other with our words. And let me encourage you, before you continue on in any engagement, allow Dr. Bannon to return. If you don't know what I'm talking about, he's the character that turns into Hulk. And oftentimes he returns and he's like, what? What happened? Now, friends, engaging people when, when, when we're in, in a Hulk syndrome is never going to be pretty. And if you're a child of God, 
exercise a gospel-driven, scripture-anchored self-control. You don't have to have that conversation right there and right then. Fight against it. Allow yourself to retreat back from hulkdom and begin now to, to bathe yourself in the truth of who you are in Christ and who you're speaking to and how to get out of this mess. Number four, take pains to listen. Is there something that was said to you in the wrong way in anger or put to you uh, or, or a put down that has an element of truth to it? Someone might be saying something that is true but saying it in the wrong way. Are you willing and able to discern the nugget of truth from the way in which it was communicated. We like in our discussions to brush aside the nugget of truth because it was said in the wrong way. And certainly this is not an excuse to say, hey, just speak however you want. That would go contrary to the whole passage we're looking at. The point is, there may be a nugget of truth. And friends, if you can grab that nugget of truth, it might be the most important thing you do. Take pains to listen. Boy, we, we just need to listen. I need to listen. Number five, determine what idol you are worshiping that you think gives you the freedom in this moment to speak evil and judge your brother. Think through that. What has been the idol that you have been worshiping as you have been in the thick of this conflict? that you feel gives you the right to speak down to that person in a judgmental way. I will be respected. I'll be heard. I'll be valued. I'll be obeyed. I will be satisfied. I will be undisturbed. I will be seen as right. I will be proven innocent. I will be vindicated. I will not be undermined. I will not be marginalized or misrepresented. I will not be painted into a corner. I will not be abused. I will not be bullied. I will not be told what to do. I will not be manipulated. I will get my way. I will have my say. I will do what I want. Remember, good things become evil things when they become ruling things. We all have idols. And those idols are often the motives that drive our destructive talk. Number six. I said one, I said five, right? So this is free. Right? Confess and repent of your sin before God, and if necessary, to the person you have been speaking evil against. This is worldliness in our speech that has allowed the wisdom of the world to shape our hearts to the point that it drives both what we say and how we say it. Friends, this should not be a picture of us. But the sad reality is, many times it is. And James wants us to see the way we fall short 
so that we can look at our hearts, allow the implanted word to have its way in our hearts, and that we can grow in our maturity to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that we have a God who understands us. And sometimes, Lord, we we just look at your commandments as, as daunting things. But the truth of the matter is, Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know the idols that we worship. You know the way that we, we are triggered into getting angry over things. The words that are said and how they're spoken. And Lord, you know how, how we turn into the Hulk and the damage that it results. But Lord, help us to see that we are not to speak evil. That we're not to judge. That, that, that those things are true in us and that you want to rid them from our hearts so that they don't even come out of our mouths. But Lord, that requires humility before you. That requires you to have your way with us. That requires our submission to your truth and your commands. That requires that we long to serve you. It also requires that in the midst of our trial that we're willing to remain steadfast and be taught and instructed so that we can ultimately reach that place of maturity. Oh, Lord, we need you. This passage is screaming at us that we need you. But Lord, thank you that you are a powerful Savior, creator, sustainer, but Savior of people who do not deserve your grace and your gospel. And Lord, for that, we are incredibly amazed and we're truly thankful. Help us, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.